welcome to the Rising Edge DNO podcast with me, Richard Kutcher and Owen Dacey. Episode 17 is the second installment of our two-parter on corporate governance with Sarah Bell, partner at Grant Thornton, and Philippe Gouraud, CEO of Rising Edge. We will hear from Owen again at the end of this discussion for his key takeaways and our season three wrap-up. See you on the other side. So, Philippe, as CEO of Rising Edge, with respect to corporate governance, how do you see it? What did you do? Um, what have you? What did you learn? What are you learning to, through the process that might help others in, in the, on that journey? You know, Rising Edge, being an underwriting agency specialising in underwriting uh, DNO risk, I thought it would have been a, a little bit kind of ironical if uh, we were not applying good governance to to ourselves. How can we actually kind of the believe we can assess you know, um, the exposure of our clients if we don't apply some of these uh, principles to, 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 to ourselves. So, uh, so that was kind of like the very original guiding principle in terms of like why to apply you know, strong uh, corporate governance. So we went on, we established a, uh, a board, uh, making sure that we had two uh, non-exec directors and uh, Sarah, I can assure you that uh, there is really strong debate uh, at board level um, in terms of, uh, and um, we went on, we have a risk register, you know, we have like uh, board subcommittees, uh, two of them, uh, one regarding uh, an underwriting committee, uh, the other one regarding remuneration. So we went on and, and so, so we've established all of this and um, uh, as, a, as, as a really just a nascent business, right? But the key challenge, really, um, in, in, in my experience, and, and Sarah touched on that earlier, is really bandwidth. There are so many, so many day-to-day things that need to be dealt with that, um, you know, finding the bandwidth to do some of the basic t- um, uh, blocking and tackling, such as making sure that, you know, the board has an agenda and all the pack way in advance, not at the last minute, because that's one of the kind of like if you want to have an effective board, they need to be able to have time to look at what is going to be discussed. Um, uh, this is not a reading session, it's a discussion session, right? So really the, the, the topic of, of, of bandwidth and being able to prioritize and to set time aside to look at these uh, uh, key elements has been and still is, I think, the key challenge uh, in, in, in the way of, um, of, of good, um, good governance. And yet, frankly, that cannot be ignored, right? Um, I think one just needs to kind of look at the uh, the press um, no later than uh, this morning to see that particularly for regulated business uh, businesses, you know, regulators are not taking this really, really seriously. There is this case that um, announced, I mean, th- this morning, uh, okay, it takes place in, in Europe, but we are uh, a global business, right? Where the, uh, the CBI actually has fined 5 million, reduced to 3.5 million euros, a, a regulated firm for the failure of establishing and maintaining sound, and I'm quoting here, a sound and adequate corporate governance and risk management for the failure to establish effective conflict of interest policies and procedures, failure to adequately assess reasonably perceived potential conflict of interests. So these are kind of like, uh, uh, it, it, it shows you know, that we have moved on from uh, the expectation of having a set of policies sitting on the shelf, right? As I was saying er- earlier, to actually bringing all these uh, policies in an interconnected way, as Sarah was saying, 
on a day-to-day -day basis. How do you actually live these, this uh, good um, uh, governance? So these are the two challenges, right? One is to find the, the bandwidth to really design it uh, appropriately. And then secondly, how do you ensure that on a day-to-day -day basis throughout the organization from the, non from the chairman, the non-exec directors, the board members, the executive committee, and each and every member of staff, you know, how is all this body of like principles, you know, expected behavior, conduct, uh, kind of lived on, on a day-to-day -day basis? These are to me the, the key challenges in, in implementing uh, good corporate governance. Great, thank you, Philippe. That's a, that's a run through on on a real life example there. Um, and um, Sarah, could you run us through a few more uh, real life examples, but maybe at both ends of the scale? You know, a good example of a company where that that strong corporate governance is creating sustained value, and then maybe one where you know there is maybe a, that well the, the evidence suggests that it was poor governance that was a factor in maybe destruction of value or or even the you know the company um, ceasing to exist. So I think in terms of those that have got strong governance, I think, you know, we, we do have many examples of that in the market. Um, interesting ones perhaps to have a look at, Halma, Ashdead, London Stock Exchange, Howden's, and why they have stronger governance is that point around that interconnectivity and also that prioritization. Um, they've got that right in terms of their purpose and also their strategy. It's quite interesting because obviously if you do have strong governance, there will be times where you might make decisions that intuitively over the short term do have an impact on share price and on value. Um, and an example I could give you of this actually would be Johnson Matthey. Um, they recently pivoted and exited their batteries business. Um, because they felt it wasn't in line with their purpose and their strategic objectives at great cost in order to focus on developing their hydrogen business. And I think that's quite an interesting example because obviously that did impact share price. It'll be interesting to see the outcome and follow that over the next couple of years. I think in terms of those with poorer governance, you know, there will be names that I will mention and everyone will nod, <laughs> nod to, but each of them obviously have their own nuances around what was the failure in governance. But generally, it is one part of that cog that has failed and then has brought down the sort of pack of cards. An example um, I could play back to you is around sort of cooperative group. Um, that at the time was found to have many governance failings, including a board of directors which was overly large and the members didn't have the depth of knowledge or skills and experience to be overseeing a company of that size and also with the banking services it had as well. Um, this led to sort of poor strategic planning, weaknesses in the risk management aspects of the business, a poor internal culture. Um, there was limited internal control environments that were seen off the back of that. Um, so it really bred toxicity right through the organization. Now, we've obviously seen a great turnaround um, in that proposition to market now where they've gone out with a very, very clear purpose and seem to be building up quite uh, building up to where it was before. I think other ones that are obviously quite well publicized were obviously Volkswagen. And they obviously allow lofty ambitions to blind them from their responsibilities towards that wider stakeholder group. I mentioned the sort of customer, the shareholder and the environment and society in general. Now, whilst that generated short-term profit, ultimately they ended up paying 30 billion in 2015 around that cheating scandal. 
Um, and I think when it was also discovered, it also resulted in the company share price dropping by 30% and it wiped out, I think, about $26 billion in shareholder value. I think ultimately what was found in relation to that was the supervisory board didn't carry out its role properly due to lack of authority and independence. The composition of the board and the lack of skills and experience, including diversity, were cited amongst other operational governance issues, as well as the consequential remuneration structures and the culture. So again, getting the governance wrong, whilst it might cost money up front, it can have huge impacts, whether it is delivered through fines, reputational issues, etc. We've gone, we've gone to the scale of Volkswagen, VW, Co-op. Just coming back to, if a company, you know, if companies who are start of that journey, who are, who are maybe startups or just on the start of that uh, journey of implementing um, the governance within their organisation, where do you start? And then how do you go about kind of measuring how, how you're doing? Sure. What, what can you do? If anyone's starting out, I think your best reference point is to take a look at a governance code because... Again, that code is not there to drive compliance. At the end of the day, people can comply or explain. But I think it does provide guidance and it is built up on a distillation of best practice. So I made reference, obviously, to the UK code, but also um, in 2018, at the back end, there was the release of the Weights Principles, which were published for large private organisations, which has six really easy-to-follow principles, being purpose and leadership, board composition, director's responsibilities, opportunity and risk, remuneration, and stakeholder relationships and engagement. And I think what boards or organizations need to do is to run through and say, do we feel that we adequately address this? If not, are we happy that we don't? Because sometimes, as I say, it's not a one-size-fits-all. If I was also, I guess, to reflect back on the 10-year study that I referenced before, what we also look to do is um, review that top quartile population to see if there were any attributes that we could find that they did better or significantly better than that bottom quartile. And I think there were sort of six, oh, sorry, five that we reflected on that were consistent themes. And that was around a clear business model that links through to strategy, risks, culture, value and reward, that interconnectivity point, that backbone point that I made. Succession planning. There was a clear articulation and thought process. And succession planning wasn't done in a linear way around tenure. It was thought about much more dynamically around what are our risks, what are our objectives, and do we have the right skills and people in place, not just at board level, but throughout the organization, that there is a clear risk management approach, which is simple and it's measured. And equally, I would sort of err on the side of caution. If you speak to organizational leaders and they tell you that they've got 25 strategic risks, well, they're not strategic, if, I, if I'm honest. I think you need to be looking at 10 or less if they are truly strategic risks. I think also that there is a clear articulation around the process and control environment, that internal control environment. Do people understand that process and control environment and what is expected? And I think the final one was, which was quite an interesting one, actually, was that commitment to continuous improvement at board level through its approach to board effectiveness reviews and then wanting to bed in learning. And we really saw that top quartile articulating that, whereas the bottom quartile was very silent around that basis. And again, often, you know, I made the point that corporations are living and dynamic, you know, sort of beings and, and boards need to be that way as well. Obviously, you've got sort of very top talent around the board, 
but you've got to make something out of the sum of the parts, just not, not just the parts around that table. And to do that, that group needs to continue to learn and develop to become a high-performing team. And sometimes that can be quite challenging as, as people viewed, um, you know, I've achieved whatever I have and now I'm at the table for that reason. So again, I think reflect on those thematics that we've discussed, but equally I would go back to some form of governance code as a reference point. Interesting. And so what about, I was going to ask also, Philippe mentioned um, uh, the role of, of non-exec directors. And I, th- I think I remember seeing maybe in one of your reports, actually, that, that the role of, uh, or there is an increase now in, in companies bringing on non-execs. And can you talk to us a bit about the, the role they can play and what value they can bring to the whole piece? I think ultimately the value they can bring is independence and independence in thinking from two perspectives. I think one perspective is obviously around that assurance and that monitoring and that fresh pair of eyes around that potential risk that could exist. But equally, it's also that different thinking around that strategic generative dialogue, you know, really lifting the executives' um, heads up to look beyond the horizon that perhaps they might be focusing on on a day-to-day basis. And I think NEDs can do that really, really well. Ultimately, I think they've got sort of two questions to ask executive or work with the executive around, and it's doing the right things. Are we taking enough risk? Have we outlined our strategic priorities, which will help achieve a longer-term purpose? Are we inspiring the executive? Are we bringing them fresh perspectives? And are we helping them, if I use a sort of analogy of a forest, are we helping them look beyond the trees? And then I think the other lens, if I can break it down, is saying not just are we doing the right things, but are we doing things right? And are we? Have, do we have the right oversight of risk? Are we monitoring the executive and protecting value and looking for that thing that could be behind the trees? And I think the NEDs have a very valuable role to play within that. But equally, again, there needs to be real clarity because ultimately you can potentially end up with three or you do have three leadership teams. You have the executive, you then have the NEDs, and then you have the combination of the two. And everybody has to be very clear in their roles as it allows them to be more, much more effective when, is, when there's that sort of operating uh, memoranda, I'd say, around that kind of how, yeah. how do we interact and work together. We're going to move on now. The world that we've, we've you've touched on that a little bit, Sarah, already, ESG and ESG within the context of corporate governance. What do you, what's the opportunity there and, and, and what are the risks there in respect of all, all the various corporations out there that are looking to kind of implement a strategy on ESG for the company? <laughs> it's very interesting. To very, ESG is a very interesting, very fluid topic at the moment. And, and I, like, I like the fact that you say people are implementing an ESG strategy. They say that to me, but actually they are implementing a ESG hygiene factor. They're, they're trying to get the basics right to continue to operate, to continuing to work with their customers, their suppliers, etc. There are many ESG hurdles that people are having to grapple with. And I don't think that's a strategy so much as just the license to operate. I think people are still to get their heads around. And as you mentioned there, that opportunity side of ESG. So, you know, in terms of opportunities, there is the opportunity for value creation. It potentially can reduce the cost and capital because we are seeing banks and lenders, et cetera, treat ESG assets slightly differently. You can attract investors. You can have better employee relations, customer satisfaction. It can also allow you perhaps more simply to review and reform internal controls. And it offers you, as I said, the ability to explore potentially new business areas. 
The risks, however, are not small on ESG, I would say. I think ultimately it's a company's reputation and authenticity around ESG, and I will come back to that point. It's ensuring compliance with relevant laws and regulations, which are very fluid at the moment and and, and in some cases absent. Um, Another really big one, which we're seeing an increase, I guess, in litigation funders in the US, but around looking for misrepresentation on ESG. Because when you're dealing with ESG, you're dealing with new data sets, different time horizons. And I think it takes, it should take companies at least three or four reporting cycles to get accurate information. And I think companies are going out with good intent, but potentially are exposing themselves um, in terms of some of the disclosures and promises that they're making around ESG. And that could lead to litigation and or I think regulatory fines. I think also the other risks, and I mentioned this around potentially the benefits, but if you don't start to cover some of those ESG hygiene points, there's going to be difficulty in securing suppliers and not meeting their standards and all the same with customers as well. And ultimately, I think at the moment, there's a need to rely on external expertise and there is higher costs associated with doing ESG properly at the moment. But interesting, we're watching two market thematics, I'd say, at the moment, quite closely. So the one is the case being brought against Shell, where the board is currently being sued for failing to prepare for the transition away from fossil fuels to net zero. So there's a major shareholder that's notified Shell of its claim against the company's 13 executive and non-executive directors. But equally then, we're starting to see some pushback against ESG, particularly in the US. And I'm not sure if people are familiar, but we're starting to see Republican states push back against ESG to preserve fossil fuels and national energy security is the argument that they're using. So it is going to be interesting over the next sort of 12 to 18 months to see whether what happened during the pandemic and COVID will slightly start to be pulled back slightly with with that argument around national energy security. I think it's really interesting to see how that space related to kind of like ESG, implementing ESG, uh, adhering to ESG, whatever word we use, um, how it's maturing, right? I mean, and, and where the litigation seems to be going. Because at, at, at the very beginning, or let, let's say like a, a couple of years back, I mean, that as recently as that, you know, the, the, the obvious targets were kind of like in a quote, quote unquote here, right? I mean, were kind of like the obvious targets, are, i.e. polluting, um, uh, perceived bad corporate conduct, etc. Et so, so that's where it seemed to be like the focus of litigation, investigation, uh, you know, security class action, I mean, focusing on that. And as our good friend uh, Kevin Lacroix in his um, uh, DNO diaries is now pointing out, you know, what we at Rising Edge started to kind of like identify maybe 12, 18 months ago is that actually, hold on a second. I mean, a lot of discussion or disclosure or kind of like a seemingly goodwill around kind of ESG might not be a, a good underwriting indicator. You know, so we were asking ourselves the question is that. You know, like, um, is there not like a risk there? And, and actually, from what Sarah just described, it's just a natural evolution, right? I mean, I think a lot of companies kind of like jumped on it saying, okay, well, we need to do something without really thinking about the long-term consequences of, of maybe bending the reality a little bit, kind of like, or maybe getting a little bit ahead of themselves, not being able to really deliver on what they genuinely wanted to deliver. And now we see this trend of, of litigation and, and activism refocusing the attention, you know, moving on from kind of like the perceived bad guys 
to kind of like the uh, want to be good guys that actually haven't been able to be good guys, right? And um, and and I think that trend is is really interesting to 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 observe and makes it even more difficult, I think, from a, a DNO risk underwriting perspective, how to factor in this kind of a vast and complex and and, and fairly undefined area that is uh, ESG. And, and perhaps if I could just add, add to the comments that you were making there, I think if you were looking at an organization, I think there's three areas for me to really explore with a company around ESG. One of them is around really understanding the process and control environment when it relates to qualitative data sets. The other is around data governance maturity and the organization's response to that and, and how they are looking at that and evolving that. And the other one, which I think is quite dangerous actually at the moment, is a lot of companies have said that they've got limited assurance around their ESG, but they're not very clear what do they mean by limited assurance. So some people will read that and stakeholders will read that, like we've had the whole ESG approach assured, when actually when you look at the fine print, it just means that they've had some of the carbon credits looked at or um, carbon disclosures looked at. So if there were three areas I'd focus questioning on, it would be around those three spaces. I mean, that carbon credits one is, um, that's, I feel like that's a huge ticking time bomb to unravel <laughs> at some point. Watch this space. <laughs> yes, watch this space indeed. Yeah, that's really about it on the weekend. So we're on to our last, last, last topic, and it's to do with the current kind of macro environment we find ourselves in with financial, political instability, um, massive pressure all over the place for, for, for um, companies, you know, thinking supply chain inflation, uh, labor shortages, to name a few. What's the potential impact of all this within, again, the context of, of corporate governance? Um, it's interesting. I think I sort of alluded to it before, but I think the overarching observation I would have is that the current fluid environment is driving that inflection point for governance, where we have definitely observed in the data that we collect, and I'd say post the sort of pandemic, many companies have actually reconsidered you know, purpose, strategy, relationships with their stakeholders. And I think you can clearly see there's a tangible realization that organizations need to consider a capital agenda beyond financials and also there's a need to think in a more integrated way so as a consequence we've seen a significant increase in adoption of certain areas of the code you know areas i can point to now um, is around sort of articulation around culture and measurements of culture. You know, previously, pre-pandemic, we were seeing about sort of 40, 45% compliance. That's up almost now to 100% compliance. And the same would also be around purpose. You know, sort of post-pandemic, we've seen people either restating and or stating purpose. And again, there's been a huge increase around that. I think areas to watch out, though, for, and I, and I still see it quite a lot, is... And as you said, we alluded to before around that kind of living and breathing, what we don't see is companies articulating how they measure impact and or how they can demonstrate is connected right through to remuneration. So whilst we've almost got that integrated statement, it sort of falls down a bit at the end and, and they're saying it's important, we're measuring it's important, yet no one's been held accountable around it because it's not through the remuneration structure. Um, yeah. So that, I think there'll be an interesting space to watch but I think because we are moving into much more fast-paced, much more fluid movements, you know, companies need their people to act quite quickly and quite instinctively sometimes in line with strategy purpose and, and governance and strong governance really needs to underpin that. 
Otherwise, you will start to have inconsistencies and or, as I say, people will start to develop their own workarounds, which will evolve in inefficiency and or start creating the bedrock for fraud and or misrepresentation around certain things. So for me, I think in times of crisis and uncertainty, corporate governance is more important than ever. I think it's crucial that companies have a well-structured and effective board, which is capable of focusing on the right things, asking the right questions and making the right decisions to ensure stability. I think companies with strong corporate governance are more resilient and would take a shorter time to recover from crisis as they're able to be a bit more proactive and responsive more consistently and quickly for all their stakeholders. I think lack of adequate and balanced governance structures would only lead to more damage and it would be significantly harder for companies to recover in a consistent way. So I think, you know, clearly the recent current environment has asked some quite profound questions about organisationals' purpose, resilience, and how they operate has now changed. And that's the one thing I think when there are arguments against governance, I think not only can it be around cost, et cetera, those people need to realise the operating environment has changed significantly. Well, thank you to Sarah and Philippe for that conversation on corporate governance. Owen, across both parts of that discussion, there is a lot to take away. Of course, corporate governance is a broad topic and highly relevant one to the world of DNO risk and insurance. So uh, if you can pick out a couple, what are some of the points that, that stood out to you? I've got more than a couple, but yeah, fantastic um, conversation <laughs> and uh, lots of takeaways. Just a few observations I pull out. I, I was I, I found particularly interesting. Just an initial one regarding the way in which to view corporate governance as a whole as a concept. You know, the word compliance comes to mind, and in some minds that will evoke both terror and dread. Um, but I think you know, I, I much prefer the idea of, of it as being a way to provide a, de- a decision making infrastructure. I think the way um, Sarah put it much better, and I don't, you know, I don't think you'll find anyone who doesn't agree that the way in which we make decisions is important. So, I, I, I like to come at it from that angle in future. Another key point was around a company's strategy, purpose, culture; those things being the foundations, and then the governance structure is informed by those things and hangs off those things. So, all ties back to purpose. You can't go off and create a, a framework without establishing those things first. I thought that was a that was a great point because obviously people need to understand the how and the why, otherwise that there is execution risk there. A very interesting point I thought also was around the board effectiveness and the evidence Grant Thornton had found in the top performers on corporate governance, i.e. the best performers articulate that commitment to board effectiveness reviews, they embrace a continuous improvement approach, even the board members themselves, of course, in a lot of places, going to be really experienced people with expertise and lots of experience. So, I think this is highly relevant now because Sarah alluded to to it there as well. The world is more fluid; things change quicker, new risks come up um, all the time. So, there is that need to be to react with speed and purpose. So, continual learning and development was an important learning point there. And I'd love to know how many, you know, what companies. I'd love to, you know, great question to ask. I think, as a DNO um, standpoint, you know, what what does the board do? With respect to learning and development for their own own learning and development, and then just from a DNO risk mitigation standpoint, there there is that obvious link between poor governance in the first place and and the DNO litigation loss exposure. But then, I, you know, I see it. Companies can, who have good corporate governance get dragged into things all the time, and there is that risk. 
um, in, in terms of litigation or, or investigations. That governance framework can provide that that audit trail around decision making and state of mind. And that state of mind is often really important when you're in the context of investigation, litigation, you know, going back and thinking and looking, why did you make that decision? How did you make that decision? Within what context were you making that decision? And um, if you don't have it there, then you're, you're actually explain, you're trying to explain something that happened years ago and why you took a certain decision. So it's just much weaker from, a, from an evidentiary standpoint. So I thought that was... That was a great thing to pull out on DNA risk. So those are my those are my key takeaways. Like you said, there's loads more there, but they were just some of the key ones that that were especially interesting to me. Yeah, and I thought it was really good to hear um, from my side. I thought it was really nice to hear from Philippe as well about kind of how Rise and Edge are tackling some of these subjects themselves internally as as you guys grow as a company. So yeah, I thought it was a brilliant discussion, both part one and part two, and lots there to get stuck into. I think part one was one of our most listened to episodes in terms of the first couple of weeks of release. So really obviously has been received well that is going to be it for season three of the rising edge dno podcast but i believe owen we are going to be back for a fourth season and we already have a few plans in place for that of course when do you reckon owen will be back on the airwaves and back in our listeners podcast apps put me on the spot um, no, we're absolutely committed, I think, and, and still loving loving doing this. So I think um, all will probably be revealed in the summer. We'll have a little bit of a break. Um, lots of lots of ideas and plans going into action right now. So, yeah, expect to hear from us again in the summer. But in the meantime, there's the back catalogue. So obviously go back and listen to all the old ones as well. That is a very good point. And I have, you know, experience from my own podcasts, both uh, insurance-related and football-related podcasts that I produce. I do know that sometimes people discover a podcast episode from, say, the Rising Edge podcast. Maybe corporate governance has turned up. They know Sarah. It's come on their LinkedIn feed. They've loved the episode and they've gone back and, and listened to previous episodes. There's loads to get stuck into there. ESG, policy wordings, deep dives, sanctions, chat, crime, litigation, experience and advice. That's a fantastic episode. So there's so much to get stuck into if you are a fan or interested in the world of DNO, corporate governance and everything kind of related to that. And even um, I think we did some inside tracks, Owen, on uh, you know how claims management works yeah. in these situations, You know how you work with your insurer, your broker, the role of those different people. So it really is a rich resource of information. Um, well, thank you to Sarah Bell of Grant Thornton and, of course, Rise and Edge's own Philippe for their insights on corporate governance over the past two episodes and all of our guests throughout season three of the Rising Edge DNO podcast. Owen, I guess I will maybe perhaps bump into you in an establishment along Fenchurch Street in the, in the coming weeks. I hope so, Richard. And and thank you so much as well for, for everything you've done as well. It's been fantastic. And thank you again to all of our, all of our guests. It's been great. And all of our listeners, all the best. Take care.